Good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, and we'll be going through the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. Just waiting for the pages to stop turning before I read. pretty close. Romans 6 verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as, uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray as we consider this word from God. Our Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to open up your word, we pray for uh, illumined minds. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts to understand, to apply, and to love this message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Sarah and I moved into our house, uh, coming up on three years now, uh, we had a dishwasher. It was an old dishwasher. It looked old and it was not working properly. You could run it, but the water would just sit in the bottom. It would not drain. As a first-time homeowner, as a husband, and as a dad, I saw it as my duty to address this problem. And so I pulled the drawers out, and I unscrewed all the things in there, cleaned out all the filters, and miraculously, we was able to get it all back into the dishwasher, ran the dishwasher, and guess what? It didn't drain. I had not fixed the problem. So I assume certainly the problem is with the dishwasher. And so we went and bought a new dishwasher. And as the new dishwasher was being installed and tested, guess what happened? The new dishwasher didn't drain. In all of my expertise in dishwashers, which I do not have, I had not realized that the dishwasher was connected to the garbage disposal. That is where it drained through and that there was a plastic cork between the dishwasher and the garbage disposal. My efforts 
were targeted in the absolute wrong spot to address the actual issue. Often I think in our Christian life, we seek to make changes, we seek to start doing something or stop doing something, but we target the wrong issue. We start in the wrong place or we we do things out of order and so we don't actually know what to do. And I think Romans chapter 6 gives us a roadmap for how believers are to address their sin and their lives. And I have to confess to you, this is a really difficult passage for me. I wouldn't normally draw your attention to this, but I think in this case it will be helpful to you to know why this is so challenging for me. This was a difficult passage because it's tricky. It's a difficult passage. There's a lot of repetition, and there's a lot of really deep rabbit holes that you can go down. It's a difficult passage because it acts like a mirror. You see, when I look at myself through this passage, I see my own sinfulness, I see my own faithlessness, and I'm confronted with my own inadequacies before God. And third, this passage is difficult because it just did not match up with what I thought it should be. I write out all my sermons, and I wrote this sermon four times this week. But I realized by the last sermon that what I was really struggling with was not how complicated it was, not that it was a mirror, but that I didn't understand what it was trying to say. I was battling against what this text communicates, and I hope to unpack that for you this morning. This passage starts with a rhetorical question. Should we just, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? See, through these first five chapters of Romans, Paul has been presenting the gospel. The gospel is something, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and if we trust in, if we have faith in the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. It's by faith and faith alone. We talked about that last week. And faith alone is significant. It was the rallying cry for the Reformation. See, Paul's opponents in, in the Roman Catholic Church, Martin Luther's opponents, were concerned that if justification is truly by faith and faith alone, then people would just be able to live however they want. They would have license to sin. If, if it's really not about my works, then I can just continue to sin. And so they adopted a view of justification that worked like this. Faith plus works equals justification. Faith plus works equals salvation. What that means is if you have the right faith, the right works, you would have a confident standing before God. And this understandably puts a lot of weight into what you do or don't do. And even if you trust God and, but didn't perform the right works, you might not have as confident of a position before God. And so the, the fear of losing your salvation becomes a motivation for doing good works, for overcoming your sin. And we often do this, don't we? We often do this with our kids. Some of you don't have kids. If you do have kids, we have a tendency to use fear to motivate them to do the things that we want them to do. A moment I'm not particularly proud of, I'll share with you. Uh, I had a sick kid and he needed to take his medicine. And the medicine was really gross. I accidentally drank some of it. It was bad. And so I, in my patient, glorious wisdom, decided the way for me to motivate my child was to scare him into taking his medicine. If you don't take this medicine, I'm going to give you something that you like less. 
He took his medicine, but what I didn't achieve was lasting trust that I was, what I was giving to him was actually good for him. My son didn't trust me or love me more at the end of that day, and as a parent, when you have to re repent to your three-year-old for how you treated them, it's always a humbling circumstances. See, fear does not create lasting positive, positive change in the lives of believers. God does not use fear to motivate you to obey him. And so Paul is addressing this silent argument. If fear doesn't motivate us to right living, why would we ever do the right thing? Why would we obey God? Why would we say no to sin? And so here in Romans 6, Paul unpacks that the Christian life is not about responding in works to what God has done for us in salvation, but the Christian life is about trusting what God has done for us through our salvation. And this was the key struggle for me. As I studied this text, I kept on wanting to see these verses as being responses to what God has done for us. At one point, I had eight points that all started with a letter C of things that we did in response to what God has done for us. We were going to cease sinning. We were going to connect to Christ. We were going to um, consider our confidence. I had all this planned out. And it's good stuff. We are to do those things, I think. And we're to do more good things. We're supposed to read our Bible more. We're supposed to, to kill our sin. We're supposed to set up boundaries so we can be protected from sin. But this is not the starting point for our battle with sin. God is not using fear. Our battle against sin is not about uh, living in fear. It's not about negating pain. But it's, it's not about to look good. Our foundation for our Christian life, our foundation for our battle against sin is this. It's Christ. See, our Christian life does not move past what Jesus has done for us. Last week, I, I talked about how great it is that God has removed the, the weight and the penalty of our sin from us. But the work of Christ does not just tell us that our destination has changed and he leaves us to get there. The work of Christ does, does change our destination, but it also gives us the power to get there. It puts us on a different road. He, he promises that he's going to bring us to salvation. He's going to continue to make us more like Christ. So it's not just about final victory, but it's about daily victory. And so this morning we're going to look at four things that Christ has done for us that we trust him in. The first one is this. In Christ we have died to sin. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Believers, my Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are dead to sin. You are dead to it. This is not to be confused with dead in your sin. Dead in your sin is the biblical truth that prior to your salvation, you were actually spiritually dead, unable to choose to do the things that would please God because you were enslaved to your own sin. You were enslaved to the power of Satan. You were spiritually dead. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. But being dead to your sin means something different entirely. Death to sin is not something you do, but it's something that is true about you. It's something that you have received in your salvation, something you receive through justification. And if death to sin is objectively true about you, it is not tied to whether or not you're doing well in your spiritual life. 
It's not tied to how well you're battling your sin. It's not tied to how you feel about how you're doing in your life. You are dead to sin. In Christ Jesus, as a believer, you are dead to your sin. Meaning that sin has no longer power over you. Jerry Bridges writes in The Pursuit of Holiness, but through our union with Christ, we have died to this realm of sin. We've been set free from sin, rescued from the dominion of darkness, and turned from the power of Satan to God. Meaning that through Christ, you are no longer slaves to sin. It no longer holds authority over you. When you face sin, you are no longer obligated to give in to it and fall into that sin. You are dead to your sin. It's not yours anymore. You're dead to it. I think of the the story of Lazarus, Lazarus, Jesus' friend who died. Jesus comes to the tomb and calls Lazarus to come out. And incredibly, Lazarus rises from the dead, walks out of the tomb, takes off his grave clothes, and, and they enjoy a party together. But you know what? At the end of that night, Lazarus didn't put the grave clothes back on and go back into the tomb. Why? Because he had died to death in that moment. Death no longer held him. It no longer ruled him. And in Christ, sin no longer holds us. So we should not go back into what we've been freed from. A live person doesn't live as a dead person. And someone who's dead to sin doesn't live as a dead person. And the crucial moment was not that Lazarus walked out of the tomb. The crucial moment was that Jesus called him to life. It was the work of Jesus that rose Lazarus from the dead, and it's the work of Jesus that we trust in. In Christ, sin no longer has power nor authority over you. This does not mean we are promised a sinlessness, a sinless life, but it means that in Christ we already have victory over it. And the call is to live in light of the victory that we have over sin in Christ Jesus. We are dead to our sins. The second thing we are to trust in is that our old self was crucified with Christ. Look at uh, verse 6 with me. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. My friends, when we think about the cross, we should not think of it as merely an event we observe like we think about the, the crossing or Washington's crossing of the Delaware. It happened. That's great. But that's not how we should see the cross. In verse 6 it says, Our old self was crucified. Jesus took our old selves with him and bore them in his flesh. In Christ we are not merely observers of the events of the cross, but we are active participants. You see, what separated us from God was our, our wicked sinful hearts, our inability to love God rightly, and that was present at the cross. It was nailed to the cross, and our old selves hung there on the cross, and our old selves died there on the cross. Believers, your old selves are dead. They aren't you any longer. You have been born again in Jesus Christ. The very things that separate us from God were crucified. I mean, that God's not going to punish you again because he's already, he's already taken your old self and punished it through Christ on the cross. 
what Paul is doing is showing us that our identity now is so wrapped in what Jesus has done for us that his history is our history, his righteousness is our righteousness, his crucifixion was our crucifixion, God's love for Jesus is God's love for us, God's acceptance of him is God's acceptance of us. So it's no longer that we look at ourselves and like, oh man, I'm just an angry person, I've got to be angry, or I'm just a selfish person, or I'm just a, an idolatrous person. No. Your old self, that part of you was crucified on the cross. And you bear it no more. I was reminded of that great hymn, Were You There? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when he rose up from the grave? And the answer is yes, you were there. You were there when they crucified him. You were there when they nailed him to the tree. You were there when they laid him in the tomb, and you were there when he rose up from the grave. We are not merely observers of what Christ has done. We were active participants through Christ Jesus who took on all of that for us. And so we have absolute, total confidence in him. Our old self was crucified with Christ. We have been baptized with Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of of life. Believers, we have been connected to Christ in baptism. Baptism is the outward display of what's inwardly going on. When believers are baptized, they are reflecting the works of Jesus that have been applied to them in justification. And in the early church, they wouldn't have necessarily separated baptism from salvation from even church membership. There was not a believer who would not get baptized. There wasn't someone who was baptized who wouldn't be a member of a church. Those were Synonymous. There wasn't a category for someone who would refuse to do that. So we should see that in this light. It's talking about those people who have been saved, baptized, members of churches. These are for believers. Baptism by water reflects our baptism into Christ, our identification into Christ. Whereas Christ died and buried, was buried and rose again, the believer is baptized into his death, is buried therefore with him, and like Jesus was raised from the dead, so too are believers. That's what we're doing when we baptize someone. They go under the water. They die. Their old selves die. They're buried. And they're raised to the newness of life in Christ Jesus. It's a picture of what has already happened in their heart through Jesus. When Paul talks about Israel being baptized into Moses in 1 Corinthians 10... It was that the people were united to Moses. They were recognizing his leadership and their dependence on him. So here as believers, baptized into Christ, we're recognizing we're in Christ. This is who we are now. It's our core identity. It's not anything else, but Jesus Christ is our core identity so much so that we can't go back from it. When we've been identified into Christ, we can't go back on that. We don't desire to. It's like Cortez, when he was got to America, he burned his ship so that his crew could not return home. But unlike Cortez, 
We're not left in a hostile land without hope. Christ has brought us from death to life. He has freed us from the burdens of sin. He has moved us from being under judgment and penalty to being adopted as sons and co-heirs with Christ. We have been identified into Christ, into his life, into his death, into his burial, and into his resurrection. We are identified with Christ, and we can't go back from that. We, in all things, are united to his completed work for us. In all things, believers have been given everything we need through the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and died for us, we are no longer under the wrath of God. Because Jesus wasn't a slave to sin, we who are in him are no longer slaves to sin. Because Jesus, Jesus was raised from the dead, we who are in him are raised from the dead. Don't you see how wonderful this is? Hasn't he demonstrated to you his desire for you to be with him, to enjoy him, to love him, to dwell with him? He has removed the condemnation. And he has removed from you the sin that ruled you. And he's removed from you the death that you deserved. In his death, he died your death. He was buried your burial. And his resurrection is your resurrection. See what God has done, not to just give you final victory over sin, but daily victory over your sin. He's removed all the obstacles. He's given you the power to say no and be free from the power of sin. And so here in verses 11 and 12, here it is. Here's the response that believers are to have. This is what you're supposed to do with something so wonderful. Let's read verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the first command that Paul makes in the entire book of Romans. After six chapters, Paul has finally said, believers, now this is what you do. After outlining what God has done for them, outlining who they are in Christ, after outlining what is true about all believers, this is our response. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. To consider or to reckon essentially means to believe, to trust in, to think about what he has done for you. This is the first command for believers in the entire letter of Romans. Trust in what he has already accomplished for you. Consider that. And what this lets us know is that our primary, primary sin problem does not come from the outside. We don't sin because we saw something on TV. We don't sin because someone else tricked us into it. We don't sin because we're tempted. We sin when we disbelieve something true about who God is, what God has done for us. As believers, we must trust that Jesus, through Jesus Christ, we are dead to sin. And even if we see something bad on TV, or even if we're tempted, we no longer have obligation to do it. We are dead to sin. That's the two things we need to consider daily. We are dead to sin, but we are alive in Christ Jesus. And so when we are tempted, it's not like, oh man, this is so difficult. I don't think I can do this. I'm gonna, I've got to fail. I'm an angry person. I'm going to fall into my anger. No, 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 you are dead to that sin. It no longer rules you. It does not reign over you. You are alive in Christ Jesus. You are identified in Christ Jesus. You have his righteousness. Your identity is Christ's identity. And so what's truest about you as a believer is not that you are a sinner. It's not that you can be lazy. It's not that you can be impatient or angry or whatever it is. What's truest about you this morning is that you are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. verse 12, Paul gives us the second command of the book of Romans. It's closely tied to the first. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Because you are dead to sin and raised with Christ, let not sin therefore reign in you. Don't let sin reign in you. How is it that believers allow, don't allow sin to reign in us? Well, we're not, well, well, we trust that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we are dead to that sin. It doesn't reign over me. It doesn't reign over me because Christ is in me. I've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. And if it does not rule in us, it does not rule over us. And so it is not what is something that we have to do. It does not have to be a part of us. So what is it that motivates believers towards offering ourselves as instruments of righteousness? It's love. It's the love of someone who has been loved. When we come to our sin, our battle is not where we white knuckle and say, man, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. It's not one where we're bound to lose. It's when we face sin, my friends, my family, we are not under condemnation. We are not as slaves to sin. We are not even our old selves. We face sin as victors, knowing that the war is over, knowing that Jesus has won, and our desire to sin comes from a love that we have for Jesus. I was talking with my dad this week, and he's been working on or meditating on this truth, that prior to our salvation, when we were dead in our sins, dreaded, dead in our trespasses, we would not want and could not want to choose to do the things that please God. We were spiritually dead. We could not please God in any way, nor would we have wanted to. In the new heaven, in the new earth, when we have redeemed, fully redeemed bodies, we will not want and cannot choose to do anything that would displease God. Praise God, there will be a moment where we will have final victory over the sin in our lives. But right now is the only time in our existence where we can have the ability to choose to do the right thing over the wrong thing. These are the only moments in our existence where we can repent of our sin and experience the, the grace and the mercy of God. That's the only part of our existence where people can say no to sin and be alive to Christ. It's the only part of our life where we can offer ourselves as living sacrifices, where we're daily dying to what's bad in us and living to Christ. This is the only part of our existence where we can do any of that. And so let us use these moments effectively. Let us use these moments to live in the love of our God and to love what he has done for us. So when we are tempted to sin, we are to believe, trust in, consider, to reckon what Christ has done for us. And as we trust in him, we will begin to love him more because we see how great his love is for us. See, we don't turn from sin because we fear losing a right relationship with God. We ultimately don't turn from sin because we agree that it's bad. And we turn from sin ultimately because there's consequences. We turn from sin when we start to love Jesus more than the sin that we are doing. The more I love Jesus, the more you love Jesus, the more we love Jesus, the more we will say no to sin. The more I love what Jesus has done for me, the more I will love the things that Jesus loves. The more confident I am that he is everything that I need and that he will satisfy my deepest longings, the more I will come to be like him. The more I love Jesus, the more my desire to find my security, my joy, my hope, my peace, and other things will go away. Thomas Chalmers writes, the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but may it not be supplanted by the love that which is more worthy than itself. 
We're not going to overcome our sin when we're convinced, oh, that's, that's bad. We're not going to be overcome to love money more by just understanding that, oh, the love of money is worthless. No, we're going to be overcome, we'll overcome our wrong loves with right love. And a growing love of Jesus and what he has done for us will push out our loves for sinful pursuits. It will push away our love for worldliness. As the hymnist writes, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we behold the love of God for us, we will see its worthiness and all the things of this earth will look a lot less worthy of our time, our energy, and our desire. And as we have been loved by God first, so we will love him for all that he has done, is doing, and will do for us. Believers, if we want to address the sin in our life, our first step is not internet blockers, stronger coffee, more sleep, less TV. If we want to address the sin in our life, our first step is to go back to the beginning, to go to the cross. And at the cross, we see how God has loved us by sending Jesus to die for us. At the cross, we see how God has loved us by not leaving us enslaved to our sin. At the cross, we see how we are raised to new life in Jesus Christ. At the cross, we see that our old self is gone. At the cross, we see how we have been identified in Christ. At the cross, we have seen we've been united to Christ. At the cross, we, have been, we see the love of Christ for us. And so let's answer Paul's question one more time. Why is it, believers, that we don't continue on in sin like before? Jesus has freed us from sin. We are crucified with Jesus. Our old selves were crucified with Jesus. We were united to Jesus. And it's ultimately because we love Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, may we not move past the cross. May it be the thing that brings us to you in the first place, and may, may it be the thing that we go to every day, that daily we consider what you have done for us, daily we consider how you've loved us, daily we consider our death to sin and our life in you, daily we consider how we are in you, a new creation, to live in the newness of life. God, I pray that as a church, we would overcome sin, that we would fight sin, that we would understand our victory over sin. God, I pray that we would love you, that we would not see the, the, our goal to be, man, I just want to overcome this sin, but our goal is to be, man, I want to love Christ more. And out of that love, that we would live in holiness and righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.